A recent poll by LifeWay Research indicates that over half of evangelical Christians believe that worshiping alone is a valid replacement for worshiping with other believers in the local church. Now, it's good that we emphasize personal prayer and Bible reading. That's important. But it's dangerous when it overshadows the corporate emphasis of Scripture. The Apostle Paul, after all, is writing to churches, to a gathering of believers. So gathering together as a local church is central to the Christian life. But it's difficult for us to think that way. Our modern individualism blinds us to these corporate realities, especially the ones in 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 11, which we're going to talk about today, talks about head coverings. It talks about men and women in worship, and it talks about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And that might strike us as trivial or alien or irrelevant. But the weird stuff in the Bible, the stuff that seems the most foreign to us, is often the place that we can find the most fruitful insight. The stuff that challenges our modern conceptions of church, gender, and spirituality is stuff that matters. And so we want to press into those texts, especially in 1 Corinthians 11. I know, it's funny, head coverings. What is that about? What's going on? Why are people getting sick and dying while taking the Lord's Supper? There's all kinds of weird stuff, but it's content that we need to press into and to think more about. And I think if we do, we will find that it has much more to say for modern culture than we might think. This is Understanding First Corinthians. There are two major practices that the Apostle Paul discusses in 1 Corinthians 11. Head coverings during times of prayer and prophecy and the Lord's Supper. Now, head coverings are a cultural expression of a natural reality that demonstrates a theological truth. And the Lord's Supper is one of the most powerful unifying acts within the church because it mediates to us the very presence of Jesus Christ himself by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to tease out what those two phrases I just uh, said mean, but I want you to just have an orientation to where we're going to be going with 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So with that in mind, I'm going to read chapter 11. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head. Since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry... Let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Paul begins by addressing a tradition among the churches regarding the proper use of head coverings during prayer and prophecy. Men are to pray and prophesy with heads uncovered and women with heads covered. So this seems to indicate a time in the local gathering of the church in which prayer and prophecies are offered. So it seems to be a very uh, narrow, contextual kind of situation. Now, there are many interpretations of this passage, and it would take forever to go through every single one of them. So I'm just going to give you my best shot. Head coverings are a theological principle expressed in a cultural way that reflects a natural reality. All right, it's a theological principle expressed in a cultural way that reflects a natural reality reality. Well, let me go through each one of those. First, the theological principle is that what you do with your physical head honors or dishonors your metaphorical head. And this ties into a theology of the hierarchy that God sets up. So Paul establishes a hierarchy. God is over Christ, the incarnate Christ, speaking about uh, Christ in his earthly ministry. Uh, and the incarnate Christ is over the husband, over man, and the husband is over his wife. So there's this chain of authority that Paul establishes. Now, here's how Paul connects this to the practice of wearing head coverings. He says that a man who covers his physical head dishonors his metaphorical head, Christ. And a wife who uncovers her head dishonors her 
metaphorical head, the husband. Now, it's important to see here that in this chain, Christ is not inferior to God, right? So the father is the head of the incarnate Christ, Christ in his earthly ministry. uh, And Christ in his earthly ministry submitted himself under the father's authority. But Christ was never uh, less equal to the father or inferior to the father in his earthly submission. In the same way, a wife is not inferior to her husband, though she submits herself under her husband's authority. We would never consider Christ's earthly submission as oppressive, and we should not consider a wife's earthly submission as oppressive either. So what you do with your physical head honors or dishonors your metaphorical head. Second, here's the cultural principle. Head coverings in that culture express honor and dishonor based upon gender. So nobody knows exactly what head coverings symbolize. We just, we just don't know. And because of that, I think it's difficult to be overly prescriptive about whether that applies today or not. Um, if you think it applies today, I think that's a valid reading. But I think if you don't think it applies because of the lack of information or we're not really sure what it means, I think that's valid too. Uh, some commentators say that women covered or bundled up their hair to distinguish themselves from prostitutes who wore their hair loose. So a woman with loose hair dishonors her husband by kind of presenting herself like a prostitute. Others say that head coverings protect women from the lusts of fallen angels. So this kind of echoes in Genesis 6 when fallen angels are mating and having sex with women. And uh, this might be an an allusion to Genesis 6 by saying we're we're trying to prevent that from happening uh, in, in, in the church gathering. I think the most plausible reading comes from Dr. Matthew Colvin. I did an interview with him on my other podcast, That'll Preach, and I'll actually link the show notes to an article on head coverings that he wrote, which I think is really helpful. But this is his take, and it sounds reasonable. Head coverings work as veils. Christ is no longer veiled in his glory because of his resurrection and ascension. His glory has been unveiled. Head coverings work as veils. Christ is no longer veiled in his glory, but he's unveiled in his resurrection and ascension. Right? So in his resurrection and ascension, the glory of Christ has been unveiled. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 speaks about Christ unveiling the glory that was once veiled in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. So a man covering his head symbolizes that his head, quote-unquote symbolic head, Christ, is still veiled, which would dishonor Christ. So a man should uncover his head to represent that his head, Christ, has been uncovered in his glory. In contrast, The husband, the man, has not yet been glorified. Psalm 8 says that that man was made a little lower than the angels. So temporarily, God has placed man under the angels, and one day he will glorify man. I think he's talking specifically about uh, man in that passage, but, but broadly, all of humanity will be glorified and made above angels as well. Therefore, a wife should cover her head to symbolize that her, quote unquote, head, the husband, is not yet glorified. So it's making a distinction between Christ, who's the glorified man, and man who has not yet been glorified. So a man uncovers his head, saying that his head, Christ, has been glorified. A wife covers her head, saying that her head, her husband, has not yet been glorified. That time has not yet come. Again, if you want a more in-depth explanation, you can check out the show notes. I'll have a link there to that. So we have a theological principle about what you do with your head and how it represents the authority structure God has set up. You have a cultural expression of that in head coverings, which show honor or dishonor. And third, you have a natural principle. 
And that natural principle is this, that what emerges from a head, what comes from a head is that head's glory. Now, Paul's observations about nature strike us as odd because we don't think in such earthy and physical terms, especially when it comes to theological issues. But the Bible does. Paul says the way that a woman's hair grows at a faster rate and and how it looks more glorious than a man's hair teaches us something about God's order and God's design. Hair emerges from a head and it is the head's glory. Now, Eve emerged from Adam's side. She is his glory. This is not patriarchal oppression. This is the glorious complementary design of God. Men and women are different and that is exactly why they need each other. The first woman, Eve, came from a man. But then Paul flips it and says, but every man since has come from a woman. Woman is not independent from man, and man is not independent from woman. Eve was created for the man. She was created to help her husband. And yet, all husbands that have been born since needed Eve, came from her. She is the mother of the living. A wife is her husband's glory, but her children are her glory. And there's this mutual glorification that comes when husbands and wives and the family operate according to God's design. This is a glorious thing. Men and women are two different instruments with particular tones, yet when they are brought together, they bring about a beautiful harmony. Now, again, a lot of this is admittedly speculative, but I think that the principles are important. What does this mean for today? Well, we can honor this theological principle that's grounded in nature through cultural expressions. So think about this, a holy kiss teaches a theological reality of our familial bond in Christ. And in a cultural manner in those days, that would be expressed with that holy kiss. But that that holy kiss does not carry the same weight today. It doesn't symbolize the same thing. But the holy kiss speaks to a deep reality of our nature. We are not just creatures of of relational community, but, but we need that expressed in touch and physical affection. So if you were to give somebody a holy kiss today, they're probably going to look at you like you're weird, and and maybe rightfully so. But just because the cultural expression doesn't work today doesn't mean that the theological and the natural principles are negated. There's still a theological principle that we are one family in Christ, and that should be expressed, and that physical touch is a way that that can happen. In, In a similar way, even though head coverings don't really carry the cultural weight they did in the first century, the theological realities of distinguishing men and women, of honoring God's order in marriage, in the way that we dress, is important. Culture expresses the values of a community. So we need to dress as men, and we need to dress as women, and we need to honor that distinction because we're distinct, but we also depend upon one another. And I would argue this takes on a greater importance due to the confusion about gender in our culture today. And that there is much we can take from 1 Corinthians 11, and we shouldn't let the supposed weirdness of head coverings, and whether that applies today or not, overtake the larger theological and natural principle underneath it about how men and women are different but interdependent. Now, Paul continues his address to the Corinthians by teaching on the Lord's Supper. And this is also important. Remember, we're talking about the corporate church, not just about head coverings, but about the Lord's Supper, this this. Uh, collective event of the church. So Corinth is divided up into factions, and that dishonors the inherent unity of the body of Christ. So the Lord's Supper is this family meal that, that exemplifies that unity. 
But the Corinthians are partaking of the Lord's Supper in a way that denies its very fundamental meaning. The early church likely celebrated the Lord's Supper with a surrounding event called a love feast. And the church would usually gather for a meal, which would include people from upper and lower classes. And part of that meal would eventually end up in the Lord's Supper. We would, they would actually do the event of the Lord's Supper, but there'd be a meal surrounding it. And there's this problem that arises. The upper class Christians, the more wealthy Christians, who are not restricted by the schedule of lower class manual labor, are able to get to the love feast earlier. And what's happening is they're showing up early before the poorer blue collar uh, people, many of them probably were slaves, were able to get to the event. And so the rich people get there early and what do they do? They eat all the food and they even get drunk on all the wine. So the lower class, they show up and there's nothing to eat or drink because the richer people have indulged themselves in the meal already. And this probably is the only meal they'll get that day. So Paul rebukes the Corinthians for their attitude. And he kind of mocks them. He says, oh, of course, uh, you're, you're dividing yourselves. Factions emerge so that you might determine those who are genuine among you. I think he's being satirical here. He's saying that you rich Corinthians in eating and drinking are trying to distinguish yourse- yourselves uh, uh, as, as these elite Christians. But your attempt at distinction is actually hatred toward the church and a humiliation of your poor brother. You're humiliating people who are your brothers and sisters. And he says, if you want to gorge yourself on food or drink, go get drunk at home. Go go fill up your bellies at home, but don't do it at the expense of those with lesser means. This leads into a larger discussion about the significance of the Lord's Supper. It's not just a vertical act in which individual believers fellowship with Christ, but it's a horizontal fellowship with one another. The one bread represents not only Christ's physical body, but the body of the church, the unity of the church. To discern the body is about recognizing that not only did Christ give his body, but that we as a church are one body. And to examine oneself is not primarily about introspection and certainly not about morbid introspection. You know, going through the checklist of your week and and making sure you uncovered every single idol. But rather, in the context, it's checking the sinful attitude that is behind why the rich Corinthians were indulging in the food and drink before the poor ones could come. It's that attitude of humiliating your brother. It's that attitude of, of elevating your own status at the expense of others. It's, it's dividing up the one body of Christ. And this division turns the Lord's Supper into something it's not. In fact, Paul says, you're not even taking the Lord's Supper. I don't care if you're doing the right words, if, you're, if you've got the right elements there. If you have this attitude, you are dishonoring the very heart of the Lord's Supper by your division. It's in the same way that a family dinner is ruined if one person hogs all the food. Is that even family dinner? It's not. Now, the Lord's Supper was instituted by Christ as a means of grace. This is an important term. That God mediates his presence through the Lord's Supper. And if you read like the Westminster Confession of Faith, you can, you can see a little more explanation of that. But just for the purposes of this little podcast, uh, the Lord's Supper brings to us the spiritual presence of Christ. And that spiritual presence can bring with it either blessing or judgment. So Christ is really present, but not physically, like a Roman Catholic would say, but spiritually by the Holy Spirit. And this is the traditional reformed view of the Lord's Supper. But notice that Paul says that some have grown sick or died because of their attitude in the Lord's Supper. And this echoes Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10. Just as God judged the old covenant saints 
by killing 23,000 of them for idolatry, so will he judge his new covenant saints. This judgment is not toward damnation, but discipline. So he's not killing these people or taking people's lives at the Lord's Supper to damn them, but rather to cut them off so that they might be prevented from entering into a greater eternal judgment, right? So he's actually cutting them off and saying, I'm I'm doing this so that you may not be condemned along with the world. In other words, this attitude is so worldly that I'm going to put an end to it now so that you may not be considered under judgment like the rest of the world. So this is a very real thing. God is going to judge his church and through the Lord's Supper, because God is really present, that could actually happen. So Christ is really present and that presence can bring both blessing and judgment. And this is why you must examine your heart. Is there something you have against your brother? Do you have this elitist attitude that the Corinthians are participating in? Now, this is why Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians of the cup and the bread as a participation or communion with Christ. That's in the last chapter, in chapter 10. And the question is this, Paul's saying, how can you fellowship with Christ when you hate your brother, when you refuse to fellowship with your brother? Eat and drink at home so that your poor brother can be fed. God does not eliminate class distinctions within his church. It's just a reality. But he does relativize them in light of the gospel. And the whole point of the Lord's Supper is to say this, it is because of the one body and blood that was sacrificed by Christ that has knit us together, that we are now this one church. And we want to honor that reality in the way that we share communion, in the way that we honor what the Lord's Supper is about. And fundamentally, you can't love God if you hate your brother, right? We're called to compassion and charity towards one another. That, that's ultimately what it means to discern the body. And so as you take the Lord's Supper, ask yourself, Do you recognize the unity in your own church? Do you have a love for your brother? Do you have a a sort of self-indulgent, sinful, elitist attitude in your own heart that the Corinthians had? If you do, you need to examine yourself and repent of that so that you can honor what the Lord's Supper is meant to do. It's a sign and a symbol of the unity of the church and of how Christ himself is the foundation and that those who are in Christ are now brothers and sisters of one another.